Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. Each week, a recovered alcoholic woman is interviewed and asked questions about certain topics surrounding her journey of recovery with your host, Stephanie Crawford. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host of of this here podcast, Recover Out Loud. And today on Recover Out Loud, we will be doing our flagship series, Recovered Interviews with Alcoholic Women. First, I wanna say, if at any time you feel inspired by this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us on Spotify, share with a friend, do all the things that you need to do to get this message out so we can offer more experience, strength, and hope all over the world. Today we have a lovely human with us, and I mean that. She is a lovely human being. She is very refreshing and fun, and I remember, this is a fun fact, I remember when her sponsor presented her with her two-year chip, and she said, I know what all you guys are thinking. All of you all are wishing that you could sponsor Kelly. (laughs) And now I know why she would say that, because you're a delight. Um, So anyways, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to hand it over to Kelly, and she'll introduce herself and just give us some background information about what her alcoholism looked like and what led her to a place to want to get sober. Oh, okay. Well, hi, I'm Kelly. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is March 29th of 2019, and I'm super, super grateful for that. So what led me to getting sober? I didn't know. Well, I knew that I had a problem with alcohol for a, a while. I had a difficult time controlling how much I drank when I did drink, but I didn't really try and stop drinking for a really long time. It appeared to me that like everybody around, I started drinking when I was 14, Um, and so to me, it looked like everybody drank the way that I did. And so I didn't really see a problem with the way that I drank. And for a really long time, I didn't have any, um, consequences as a result of my drinking. So it didn't occur to me that there was a possibility that at some point I would not be able to stop on my own. So, uh, I didn't try to stop drinking until I was like, I think I was like in my mid-20s. I was married, and um, it was starting to cause um, problems in my marriage. It was starting to cause problems at work. Like I wouldn't be able to wake up in time at work, and uh, I um, had the uh, shakes a lot of the time. But um, I was a barista, and I did like latte art as a barista. And so um, I joked about how um, my shakes really helped me in creating (laughs) latte art because you have to like wiggle your hand in order to do latte art. Like I'm showing Stephanie right now that you're supposed to wiggle your wrist. And so I joked that, oh, it's just, you know, I'm just really good at latte art. (laughs) But it was really starting to affect a lot of different areas of my life. And so I started trying to stop not super seriously but kind of seriously like I wanted to be able to drink like a quote normal person Uh, I wanted to be able to drink like a lady and so I tried to stop I tried to moderate my drinking um, and of course uh, I was unable to because I'm an alcoholic so it wasn't until really at the end of my marriage slash right after I got divorced when I really like wholeheartedly started trying to stop drinking Um, and that was back I think I was um, 28 when I got divorced or 29. My brother-in-law at one point found me um, drunk downstairs in their basement and pretty much gave me an ultimatum said you know you either have to go to treatment or the mental hospital or or you know go to some sort of meeting or you can't live here anymore. And so I thought, well, I probably should stop drinking. Like I should actually try. So I did. Um, And it lasted for about two weeks. And then I thought I was cured. And so I rewarded myself with a beer. And that was the start of my, yes, (laughs) that was the start of my last spree. So then when I moved, sorry, I'm giving like my whole life story. I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, no. I mean, you've only been talking for like three minutes. So you're good. I'm like trying to really like 
make it concise. But There's no no structure here. So. Okay, yeah. cool. No yeah. rules. No rules. So I ended up moving to Texas with my family. I grew up in California, um, in Southern California, and I for some reason they let me move with them. And um, I was drunk during the move. I moved into a trailer on my family's property. And so I always joke that I, I was like the stereotypical alcoholic aunt living in a trailer <laughs> down on the ranch. Like at that point, you know, I had tried, like I thought, you know, I tried. I tried to stop drinking and I'm, I can't. And so it's almost like I resorted to, or like I, I decided that this is just how it's going to be for me. Like, I'm not going to be able to stop drinking. Eventually, I ended up, I was going to go meet some guy off of Tinder. Nice. And um, I thought, well, I'm super nervous, and um, so I better pregame. So I did. And so my one glass of wine turned into a whole bottle, turned into, um, let me break into, like, my reserves that I have. And, And I was super drunk, and I ended up driving and crashing my car. I got arrested for the first time. You know, I totaled my car. My family didn't want to have anything to do with me. That was like my first, like all of the consequences that I could have ended up happening like on that one night. Mm. And so that's when I ended up going to treatment. But at that point, I still didn't, I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. I knew that I was maybe because I couldn't drink right, but I didn't know what it meant to be an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I was in treatment, I finally learned what an alcoholic was and then I was like, oh, dang it. Well, I'm, I'm screwed. Like, I can't, I can't stop. Will so. you say what an alcoholic is in case we have anybody who's yeah. listening who doesn't know? So um, I, I'm an alcoholic. So what that means is when I drink, something happens in my body that um, produces a craving for more alcohol. What I like to say is, like, for me as an alcoholic, when I start drinking, I'm already thinking about my next drink. And that doesn't happen with people who aren't alcoholic. So when I take that first sip, uh, my, my body just starts craving more alcohol. And it's not that part of alcoholism is purely physical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd always think, like, why can't, I, why can't I control myself when I drink? Like, I'm stupid or I'm crazy or something like that. But the cool thing about that particular part of alcoholism is it's purely physical. So I have a friend who says you could cut off my head and pour alcohol down my throat and my body would react the same way. So there was no amount of me willing myself to not crave more alcohol like I would I would do it because it's a physical reaction and then the other part is um, I have um, an obsession over alcohol which is the mental part which is what makes it impossible for me to stay stopped so you know people who aren't alcoholic who experience consequences as a result of of their drinking are able to stop sometimes with difficulty sometimes with not very much difficulty but for me no matter what the consequences were my mind would always drive me back to taking that first drink, either by me convincing myself that I'm cured because I went to um, meetings for two weeks or that I deserve it uh, because I'm such a good employee or in order to have fun at this baby shower, you know, I need to I need to have something to drink. So something will convince me that alcohol is a good idea or not a bad idea. Right. So... But that's, you know, me as an alcoholic. I'm bodily and mentally different from my fellows. Now, does alcoholism run in your family? It does. Yes. Yeah. On my dad's side. Well, we think. I I don't think that they ever tried. I don't know if they ever tried to stop or moderate. But my my dad's parents um, drank alcoholically. Mm. So. And so this time in treatment has been the only time you've ever gone to treatment. Yeah. Before, I'm... I was always, I always struggled like emotionally. So I had gone to hospitals to, you know, receive treatment for like my depression and my anxiety. But yeah, this is the first treatment center. That was the first treatment center that I went to, to um, stop drinking. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, I mean, I know some of your story. You, so your first time in treatment, you are already completely desperate. Yeah. So did you come in completely willing and desperate or did that come? It, it's weird because it kind of like came and went and then came back. So I remember after I got in my car accident, I was sitting with my dad on the side of the road waiting for my car to get out of the impound and it was totaled like I wasn't going to be able to drive it. But I just remember sitting on the side of the road with my dad and just saying, I want to kill myself. 
And I told him, if I go back home, if I am able to go back home and live in my trailer, I'm not going to come out. I don't know how to live anymore, and I don't want to be here anymore. I'm, I'm sure that was horrific for him to hear, but it, like it was true. Like I didn't know how to, I just didn't know how to exist anymore. Yeah, I get that. And so I didn't know if there was a way for me to live happily without alcohol because I had never seen that before. Mm-hmm. So I was desperate in the sense that like I just didn't not want to do life the, the way that I was doing it anymore. And then when I found out, you know, what was different about me, um, and I saw somebody who, you know, my sponsor who is happy and like sober and she doesn't think about, that was the biggest thing was not thinking about drinking because I was always thinking about drinking. And I knew that in order for me to stay sober, in order for me to stop drinking and to be okay about it, I would have to not think about drinking. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to try to stop drinking because I was already trying to do that. Yeah. So that makes sense so it was like when you saw what life could look like yeah then the willingness came kind of thing is that what you're saying yeah pretty much yeah and it was I I didn't know like what the program was about at all really and so I was just so completely out of ideas that I would have been willing to do anything Mm -hmm. and you know the fact that you know, this worked for my sponsor and it sounded like she drank a lot like I did. It was like my alcohol got me willing and then listening to my sponsor helped with that as well. No, I I mean, I kind of have a similar situation because what really drew me in, because I've had, I had many of attempts of trying to get sober, Mm -hmm. but I was never like happy, joyous and free. Like you hear it can happen. And so the idea of being sober wasn't appealing because either I was always thinking about drinking, like you were saying, or I was miserable or both. Mm -hmm. But when I saw somebody who told me, like, Stephanie, this is a beautiful life, Mm -hmm. and he was sober, and he was talking about how he had a beautiful life in sobriety, that's what I wanted. And I was willing to go to any lengths if I could get that. Yeah. I wasn't willing to go to any lengths if I had to be miserable in sobriety. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, like, I I have a similar situation. I mean, I guess it sounds like we've had similar situations yeah. with that. And it, this was, like, the first time that I had ever heard of the solution, the way that the book outlines it, you know, because I had never looked in the book. I had never talked with an alcoholic who was able to recover and so like I was really skeptical it was almost like she told me that she doesn't think about drinking my sponsor and I was like oh I don't 100% believe you but I don't care right (laughs) so if there's a possibility yeah maybe yeah so why did you pick her as your sponsor because it seemed like she wasn't going to like let me I don't I I felt like I needed someone to be difficult with me I don't know like she's tough she's like a really tough person and she always tells me the truth and doesn't sugarcoat things and I felt like that was something that I really needed but also she had she it looked like she had her life together like her roots were done um she had like a car which I didn't have at that time and I was like oh my gosh it's we're done I love that (laughs) yeah but I felt like uh she would be able to help me yeah yeah because, I mean, she is tough. Yeah. But clearly, like, it's coming from, like, a loving place because you've stayed with her this whole time. Yes. So can you – because we kind of – we were having this discussion last week about staying with the same sponsor, switching sponsors, and, like, my story is just – oh, you came in to mm-hmm. the tail end of that. Yeah. And my stories, I have had multiple sponsors in my sobriety, but I know – Kelsey and you have had the same one, different mm-hmm. sponsors, but the same one the whole time. So can you tell me how has that relationship grown and evolved from where it started to where it is now? Is it different? Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, it's. I feel like it's a lot different. When I first started working with her, a lot of it is due in part to me and how I've grown because when I when I first started working with her, I was really afraid to disappoint her or I was really afraid that I was going to work, you know, the steps wrong. It was like a lot of fear. Um, I did not know how to have meaningful relationships with people at all because I cared 
pretty much solely about how other people thought of me. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of feel like uh, she almost taught me how to be a human, if that makes sense at all, just by leading from example. Um, so she's not afraid of what people think of her, or she mm-hmm. at least doesn't, it doesn't seem like she does. Um, and just through 10th uh, stepping with her and talking with her about how afraid I am of disappointing people and stuff like that, I feel like, I don't know, she's taught me a lot. And so now my relationship with her is, I feel like we've grown closer in like a friendship sort of type of thing, which I think is really cool because I didn't think I would ever be able to be friends with somebody like her since she's like really successful and very honest and um, that intimidated me, but uh, it's not intimidating to me anymore. She's pretty, she's swell. She's a swell gal. Yeah. Uh, well, so you were talking about, you know, her not being afraid of like what people think of her and how mm-hmm. you were so afraid of that. And I feel like that's like a common fear mm-hmm. that we have. And I know that I can struggle with that as well. Do you feel like you have outgrown that fear? um no I mean do you feel like it's gotten better I feel like it definitely has gotten better and one of the coolest things though is so I feel like my higher power is um there are some fears that my higher power has like relieved me of and then there are others that I feel like I've received the tools in order to just push through those even when it's really scary for me Mm. so dealing with people talking with people and forming relationships with people still makes me really nervous but I feel that it's weird I feel like I have a lot of support from my higher power in order to just do those things so it's less intimidating for me to talk to people now I still get fearful over it but I feel like it's something that I can do as opposed Mm -hmm. to something that I'm too afraid to even attempt to do Mm -hmm. Uh, because I was afraid I was afraid to go up and introduce myself to somebody. But now, because of recovery, just having the practice in talking mm-hmm. with people and then, you know, the different prayers that I'm able to pray, I feel like it's something that I can do now. So, but yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day who is like afraid to talk to people and she asked me uh, do you still have that fear and I was like yeah and she she was so disappointed she's like no (laughs) don't say that and I'm like well but it's I mean maybe someday eventually I'll be less fearful over that but for right now the direction that I've received in meditation is to put myself in uncomfortable situations so that way I can have help overcoming that fear so yeah I mean, I can still get scared, too. I will go through. I mean, I probably don't seem like I'm afraid of people mm-hmm. because you don't. I'm a podcast <laughs> interviewer. <laughs> but um, I I will I will go through phases where like I am socially like, paralyzed of people. Like mm-hmm. I remember a couple of years ago I was at Recovery's Got Talent and literally there was a group of of guys that like I am like I'm friends with like I know them. Mm-hmm. And I come in and I'm just see them and I turn the other way and walk super fast past mm-hmm. them. And I remember one of my friends had called me a couple days later. And he's like, are you mad at me? And I was like, no, I'm just afraid of people. <laughs> <laughs> and like that still can happen to me. And I'll yeah. just spaz out and have to get out of there. So, yeah, if there's anybody listening who is hoping that maybe that fear will completely go away someday, according to me and Kelly, it has not. But we could be the exception or we could you could be the exception is what I'm saying but I like how you said that how some of them have completely gone away and then others you have the tools because one of my favorite lines in the big book is that all men of faith have courage Mm -hmm. which means that we will still have fear Mm -hmm. but we will have the tools and we will walk through the fear so can you tell me had some of that and I'm going to just stay on this one of fear of people um, or talking to people Mm -hmm. Did some of that come from like 10 stepping? Is that where some of the tools came from was through 10 stepping? Yeah, well, yeah. A lot of the time, me fearing what people think of me, it came to my attention that it's very self-centered for me to be afraid of those things because I'm more afraid of how you see me than I am concerned about like how you're doing. Right. And so just honestly just being aware of that has been really helpful in driving my attention toward the well-being of others as opposed to oh this person thinks I'm an idiot Mm -hmm. 
So 10-stepping, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing has just been going out. Okay, so there's a line in the book, and I always mess it up. I can't remember. Maybe you can help me. But it's is it common sense becomes uncommon sense, or is it vice versa? Is it the other way? Uncommon. Thus common sense becomes uncommon sense. Yeah, which... I don't know if this is the correct meaning for it at all, but the the way that I took it is basically like common sense for me back, you know, when I was drinking is if I feel intimidated by somebody or if I feel nervous around somebody or nervous to go to a place, I would not go. So common sense is, okay, just stay home. If you feel uncomfortable, just stay home, right? But uncommon sense in recovery for me is to go and do the thing that scares me and so that I think that particular line in the book I don't know if that's what it means but it's really helpful to me no I love that and hopefully we said it right yeah I don't know if we didn't I'm sure somebody will correct us yes Um, (laughs) and we're okay with that yeah so what another thing that you were talking I love the whole I'm more concerned with what you think of me than how you're doing because I recently had something occur the fear of what people think about me can cause me to I used to hate the word boundaries Mm -hmm. you know because I feel like it's such like a a fluff word Mm -hmm. you know and I don't like the word people please um, because people pleasing is just manipulating. Um, anytime I hear a sponsor say people pleasing, I'm like, are you sure it's people pleasing or are you lying? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? But it will cause me to act out in manipulative ways, right? Because I'm so afraid of making somebody not like me because if they don't like me, then I lose that validation that they give me, mm-hmm. you know? And like that in itself is also selfish and self-centered, yeah. you mm-hmm. know? I didn't know we were going to get on this topic, but I like it. (laughs) (laughs) So were those, would you say, because I mean, basically we're talking about like four step stuff and 10 step Mm -hmm. stuff, like fear inventory type stuff. Now, when you wrote your first four step, did you realize how fear driven you were or did that come later or? No. Well, while I was writing it, I didn't. I didn't 100% understand why I was writing it even because like I had never been through the steps before and so I didn't I didn't know like I didn't I couldn't see it at all I couldn't see my selfishness I couldn't see the fear I couldn't see a lot of the delusion that I had because I was so like wrapped up in myself which the like the fear really helped with it Even when I went through all of this stuff with my sponsor in my fifth step, it still took a lot of convincing. And the the thing that can really convinced me of of my selfishness and my self-centeredness was just like living life and and 10th stepping through all of those things. It took me a while to see to see those things. So and it can still take me a while to see those things. Like if I'm 10th stepping with and, and I call my sponsor and and I, you know, I'm talking about how, you know, I feel so stupid. I said this thing and she's like, that's selfish. And <laughs> I'm like, oh, OK, I didn't see that. So, yeah, I that I feel like that's whenever I really saw mine for the first time, too. I remember 10th stepping something to my sponsor. and It was like early, early sobriety. And I was like, am I? have I always been this selfish or am I just now this selfish? And she was like, you've always been this selfish. You're just now seeing it. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh. Yeah. But what a gift. Yeah. I mean, self-awareness is like, it's a gift if you want to do something about it mm-hmm. and you want to give it to God. Sometimes not so much a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you're like hyper aware of, yes. you're like, oh my gosh, I'm a doofus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I remember you sharing one time about your experience with the fourth and fifth step. In the book, you know, it talks about if we leave something off Mm. that we might drink. And so do you mind talking about your experience with that? You don't have to tell us what the thing is. Yeah, I'll I'll be vague. One time I was really specific when I told my story and it was so awkward because there was like 15 minutes left for questions and literally everybody just latched on to that. That thing. one thing. Yeah. And I was like, I really don't want to answer questions about this. Yeah. So I've learned my lesson. But yeah. So in my first fourth step. So I was like I said, I was married. Um, we were married for like almost eight years and it was not a good marriage. It was abusive. But I didn't know. Like I didn't. Un- 
I did not have a word for what happened during our marriage. I just didn't know how to articulate it. And so in doing my my fourth step, I included my ex-husband on it, but the reason for why I was angry with him was a fabrication. Like I wasn't truthful about what happened. Mostly it was because I did not know how to I didn't know how to word it what happened, but then also I I wasn't ready to be honest about that. And so I I went through my my fourth step or my fifth step with my sponsor and I didn't feel like a whole bunch of relief afterwards um, immediately like I thought I was going to. I was just really tired. And I don't know if that's because I wasn't 100% truthful in my inventory or not um, or if I was, I'm just a really tired person. I mean, it's a tiring, <laughs> tiring it's, it process. Very, yeah, so. but uh, what ended up happening was probably like a year-ish into my sobriety, I started just obsessing like over my ex-husband. Um, and I was very distraught. I was very fearful that he was going to do the same thing to somebody else. I was like, you know, stalking him on the internet. Like it was, it was pretty bad. I was very, very wrapped up in him. Um, and I kept 10 stepping about it with my sponsor. I was like, I don't want to focus on this person. And I'm really afraid that the same thing's going to happen to somebody else. And so finally, um, through 10th stepping it, we realized that I wasn't um, truthful in my inventory. So I was able to... So did you know that you weren't truthful the first time? I did. Yeah, I just... So what happened was when we were doing our fifth step, I had, you know, I had my, my ex on there and my sponsor you know, asked me about it. And it was like, I completely shut down and like was crying. I really did not want to talk about it. And so I think that she sensed in doing the fifth step that I wasn't ready to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so she just moved on, probably knowing that at some point this was going to pop back up. um, And obviously it did. So yeah, I was, I was knowingly not truthful about it because I did not know how to articulate what it was that I didn't know that there was a word for what happened. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, we, we ended up doing another inventory on him and, and, um, I realized, I realized, I was able to realize my part in it much better, uh, because I was actually able to, I was willing, um, to talk about it Mm -hmm. this time because I was tired of being so concerned about this person that lives, you know, like a thousand miles away from me. I didn't want to, I didn't want to deal with it anymore. So mm-hmm. I was just tired. Mm-hmm. Did you end up making amends to him? No, no. He's in California. I took a, like a trip out there, but I did not, I, I don't know if I was ready mm-hmm. at that point, And I don't know if my intentions for making amends to him were the right ones. Mm-hmm. So... Do you think you will? I'm willing to. Yeah? Yeah. I'm willing to. I don't know if if I will or not. So it just depends on what my higher power decides. So, But if the opportunity arises, then I would be willing to do so. How did you get to a place where you were willing? Honestly, in doing... After doing that that inventory with him, um, it's just like the willingness came on a little bit by little bit. Like after doing the inventory, you know, the second time on him, I still wasn't really uh, willing. But I think that because I've grown more more spiritually fit since then, um, I've become willing. Mm-hmm. So if that make did that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the willingness has. Just, it just comes. It just comes. Are you looking for a way to give back and get involved with the Magdalene Health? No work is too small, and our dedicated volunteers serve as a valuable resource to our organization. We couldn't help alcoholic women and their families without the priceless services they provide. We provide opportunities for all, as well as opportunities strictly for women in recovery. To get started, please visit our website at magdalenehouse.org volunteers and click on New Volunteer Sign Up. Somebody was doing an 8-9 podcast, and she sa- and she pointed out how it says in there, if we haven't the willingness to do this, we ask until it comes, mm-hmm. meaning that the willingness is going to come. Yeah. And I just was like, mind blown. Yeah. Love it's it. cool. It's so cool, right? Yeah. Okay, so totally like off subject. Can you talk a little bit about what early 
sobriety looked like for Kelly rides the bus? (laughs) (laughs) It was very, uh, I was just following orders, essentially. I was just doing what my sponsor told me to do because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I have a question real quick. I have an answer. Okay. Did she ever hurt your feelings? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say to someone who is, whose sponsor hurt their feelings? Okay. Well, for me personally, in my case, she just had my best interests at heart. Um, And my feelings were hurt because I was sensitive. You know, my little ego gets bruised easily. And so she just told me what I needed to hear and not what I wanted to hear. And that hurt my feelings. But for somebody whose feelings are hurt by their sponsor, I need to remember, and I feel like everybody should remember, that their sponsors are human too and can sometimes make mistakes. And Mm -hmm. so, um, but also, if you need to 10th step about your sponsor, 10th step about your sponsor. It's it's not going to hurt her feelings. Mm-mm. So it'll probably help I've been her. on my sponsor's nightly inventories before yeah. and they've sent them to me and I've seen my Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. It's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so just I guess just remember that, you know, hopefully, you know, your sponsor has your best interests at heart, but also she's a human being and, you know, she's not a robot. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So taking, that's why it reminded me of that question because you said I was taking orders. So taking orders. Yes. Taking orders. And just for me, it was like, so I'm, I'm new or I was new to um, Dallas uh, when I got sober. Like I, I moved to Dallas to go to treatment and then just like never left. Um, And so I didn't know anything about being just a sober person. um, Like, I felt like alone in in Dallas and so any direction that my sponsor had for me I took it um so when she told me to read this in the book I read this in the book when she told me to go to Maggie's I went to Maggie's when she told me to go to the 2-4 I one time tried to tell her that I did not want to go to the 2-4 and then she called me out and I was like oh Sorry. I actually made amends to her for that. Really? Yeah, because I was dishonest to her. I told her that my toilet was broken in my sober living house and I couldn't go to the 2-4 because I had to fix it. (laughs) Uh, And and so um, she told me that someone else can fix it and I'm not like the toilet police. (laughs) So nice. Yeah. But yeah, I was it was just early sobriety was just me kind of like going through It almost felt like I was going through the motions and I wasn't sure. I didn't know anything about having a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience. And um, I wasn't even really that concerned about whether or not I wasn't concerned about having a spiritual awakening because I was literally just doing what my sponsor told me. And then eventually she informed me that it looks as though I had had a spiritual awakening. And I was like, oh, that's pretty sweet. So yeah. When did she say that to you? I was 10th stepping with her about something outside of frozen yogurt place. And, um, or not, ten, I was just like, I don't know. I think I was just complaining about something like a coworker or something like that. And she asked me, um, yeah, but when's the last time you thought about drinking? And I couldn't remember. And so that's like when it popped into my mind that previously she had said, the people around you are going to notice that you've had a spiritual awakening before you have. And so that's when I realized I had had a spiritual awakening, which was pretty sweet. That is pretty sweet. It wasn't sudden. It was gradual. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't have a car. No. Did you have a job? Uh, I did. Yeah. Where was your job? It was in downtown Dallas. So I had to uh, take, I just took a bus to get down there. It was pretty. Kelly rides the bus. Yes. Yes. Hence the name. Hence the Instagram handle, y'all. Yeah. If anybody wants to find her, that's what it is. Yes, there's pictures of my dog on there. <laughs> Lots of pictures of my dog. <laughs> so, which, okay, so the dog, that's another thing. Oh, yeah. My sponsor hates it when I talk about this, but Why? it's one of my favorite things. It's. I think it's so good. Well, so when I was in treatment, I was very, very concerned about being able to find an apartment so that I could live with my dog. Like, my dog was, like... Some women are worried about, like, their children. Some women are worried about, you know, something or, like, their job or whatever. I was worried about my dog. And so, oh, because you were living in the trailer. 
Yeah. Okay. I was living in the trailer. I actually had two dogs and two cats in a little tiny FEMA trailer. And so when I went to when I went to um, the hospital uh, after I had gotten in my car accident, um, two my two cats and one of my dogs uh, were rehomed, and so I just had my one dog. And so while I was in treatment, I was just very concerned about being able to live with him um, to the point where eventually my sponsor just told me, Kelly, your dog's going to get you drunk. That bothered me a lot. And I was very annoyed and upset that she would say that because I'm like, no, my dog is my relapse prevention plan. (laughs) (laughs) Like when I feel like drinking, I'm going to go on a walk with my dog. And which I didn't understand that that's literally not a thing for an alcoholic. No. And so... You know, eventually I was talking to somebody else in the treatment center and she's like, yeah, you know, you should find a new one. And and I thought, well, a new sponsor. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, well, this lady, you know, she like I started working with her for a reason. So I'm probably going to continue working with her. And so I did. And um, eventually I was able to get my dog back. You know, he was living with my parents for a while and I was living in sober living home. And, you know, eventually I got my dog back. But I needed, you know. In order to take care of my dog, like I need to be sober, right? And so that's the most important thing. You need to be you able know? to be a good dog mom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, did you make amends to your dog? I make a living amends to my dog by just continuing to do the best that to just do what I'm doing, mm-hmm. pretty much just treating him with respect, which is kind of like weird, but like just providing for him and things like that but I didn't I didn't sit down and talk with my dog I know some people actually yeah no I've heard that that. yeah that's why I was asking so but I didn't and I had a roommate who was like well this is part of my amends to him like her dog Mm -hmm. um and I know that that's like a big thing and I Mm -hmm. you know like I respect that Mm -hmm. I don't have that relationship with animals but I know some people yeah do it's like a real thing so clearly this will probably be helpful to someone who is also having the difficulty of living like leaving their animals I wonder why she doesn't like you talking about that it's so helpful Uh, I think because she uh was uh unusually harsh to me in that moment by saying you know your dog's gonna get you drunk but it was 100% what I needed to hear yeah because me uh sacrificing my recovery in order to be there for my dog was going to make it so that I could not be there for him at all anyway because I would be drunk um if I tried to move into an apartment with my dog in a city I had never lived in before without a job without a car like there was no plan there really at all I was kind of delusional yeah very delusional yeah like we can be yeah yeah so you have a car today, right? I do. And yes. you have an apartment today? I do. And you have your dog today? I do. And you have a job today? I sure do. Oh. <laughs> All those things. All the things. Yes. Right? That you didn't have in the beginning. Yes. That a lot of us can get consumed with in the beginning with getting all of the things back yeah did you struggle with that like being consumed with getting the things back or were you just able to just throw up your hand I wasn't consumed with it but I was concerned but I I had a lot of guilt over not being there for my dog but um my you know my my sponsor kept having to remind me that you know your dog will forgive you And then I don't fully remember what my job hunt process looked like, but I'm sure there was a lot of fear in there, which is... Yes. Sorry, I want you to say this because you, whenever you looked for a job, you were like, I can't work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Yeah. um, So I have always worked in the service industry. So like with food and restaurants or cafes. And so usually with that... um, like I would always be very concerned about having like open availability so that Mm -hmm. I can get scheduled as much as possible. And so my sponsor, when we were, you know, in, when I was in treatment, she basically told me, uh, you're going to go to this commitment and this commitment and this commitment and this commitment. She didn't ask me, she didn't say, can you, she just said, this is what you're going to do, which I really appreciated. Um, but now all of a sudden I had to find a job that would allow me to be able to go to those things, which is something that I'm just like, I was not used to doing, but I think it's really important. Like if I've got, you know, this particular place to go on this day and it is imperative for me to go there, like if it's for my recovery, then I can't make exceptions for it. This is something that I have to do. And 
people all over the place have commitments that they need to go to and that their jobs can make exceptions for, you know? So I just had to, I just had, when I went and applied for jobs, I was like, I am an alcoholic and these are the things that I need to go to, uh, or else you're not going to have an employee for very long. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, we can see that in, I mean, not just next up, but just newly sober people Mm -hmm. in, in general. It's like, Yes, I'm willing to go to any links. I'm willing to do what you say, except I cannot not have open availability. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's that fear. Like, it's like fear of financial mm-hmm. security, you know, or insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was in fear of not people not liking me because I wanted my boss to be like, oh, look at her. She's got open availability. Yeah. What a great employee. Right. She you can know? be counted on for anything. Yeah. And then I get drunk. You and know? then not counted <laughs> on for anything. Right. <laughs> So what would you say to a newly sober person who is like starting completely over and who doesn't have anything kind of like where you were at? Okay. Well, a couple of things. So one thing that my sponsor told me that um, I was very skeptical of, but I actually really like now is like, so I lost a lot of my things, you know, when I moved into a sober living home, like I lost 75% of my pets my car and all of these things. And so I thought that I was never going to get those things back. I was never going to have nice things. And so my sponsor told me one time, um, God wants you to have nice things, which I was like, that's kind of like a weird thing to say. But like, I wholeheartedly believe that, that God doesn't want me to um, like, I don't, I don't really know fully how to, don't resign yourself to like, never having anything because you don't know what your higher power is capable of. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that like you're going to get like rich, you're going to get a nice apartment, you're going to get like like a Lexus or whatever, but I never thought I was going to get a car because I didn't think I could afford it and like I was eventually able to get a car. We can recover from things like that. Mm-hmm. But then another thing too is if you're starting over with nothing um, and if you know, you're like me and you're in a new city and you don't know anyone, just do what your sponsor says. You don't know anything. I didn't know anything. Um, my sponsor knew more than I did and I just had to follow her direction. And after following her direction, and a lot of it included you know, her just taking me through the work. You know, I know people. Like I've, I have, I have meaningful relationships and like, I'm still sober and I just did what my sponsor said and I just did what was in the book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you continue to do those things. Oh yeah. 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 No, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't, no, I, don't I don't win the, yeah, I don't graduate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not at all. So would you say that you're happy, joyous and free? Yes. How amazing, huh? I know. It's weird. It's a, it's wonderful. I like it. So you talked about, we talked about like getting the stuff back, right? Mm-hmm. But what has the program done for you internally? Oh. oh. Besides being happy, joyous, and free. Okay. One of the biggest things is like peace in all circumstances. I don't always feel peaceful in every circumstance because I get in the way of that a lot of the times. But I know from experience that I am able to have peace in all circumstances. Um, if I remember to do the things that I'm supposed to do, which is steps 10, 11, and 12. If I, if I continue to do those things, then I can continue to have peace in all circumstances, which has been really helpful for me, especially, you know, during the pandemic when normally I would be freaking out. Like I, I um, lost my job during the pandemic. There was, everybody was struggling during the pandemic. I don't know, just a peace in all circumstances is my biggest thing. And also learning more about who I am as a person has Mm. been pretty big because I didn't even know, I didn't know who I was at all when I was drinking. I didn't even know who I was when I started this work. But the longer I've been doing the deal, the more I know about myself um, and the more I like myself too. Like even with all the stuff about me that I tense up all the time I enjoy who I am um or who I'm becoming so what a gift yeah it's pretty crazy it's amazing yeah before I ask you the two final questions you mentioned doing 10 11 and 12 Mm -hmm. is there one of those that you struggle with the most yeah uh 11 dude I the reason why I asked (laughs) you is because I'm struggling with it (laughs) 
it's hard oh i was like literally as you were talking i was i was praying literally as you're talking like please god give me the willingness to get disciplined in 11 again yeah i'm going through it like with just with not being my step 11 is right right now currently is just hit or miss Mm -hmm. i feel like that's one that a lot of people struggle with i hate it So I had to start sending um, my sponsor my nightly reviews um, because I wasn't doing them. Mm -hmm. And then at one point I had to start doing gratitude lists because I wasn't meditating in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so I had some, I heard somebody say that it's a matter, like step 11 looks different for everybody. And it's just a matter of finding something that works for you. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. But yes, and it's weird because in sobriety, like I've gone through like some, sometimes I don't do, like in the beginning, I never 10 stepped. And then I did not want to go talk to other alcoholics um, in my 12th step. But right now it's, it's step 11. So it's like weird. I go through different phases. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll hear like step 11 looks different for everybody and I'll run with that. Yeah. To like get myself off the hook for like half <laughs> you're like well things. step 11 for me looks like a two minute <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> it looks different for yeah. everyone I'm seeking God yeah and it's like well there was something that I heard that you said maybe at some point which is if in my third step prayer uh I said I was willing to go through the rest of the steps right mm-hmm. and so why am I making exceptions for step 11 when in the third step prayer I was willing to go to any lengths or something? I don't know. I'm like paraphrasing. Um, maybe you didn't say that. Somebody Sound, did. Sounds good. But it was really helpful to me because I'm like, well, was I really serious about doing the but work it's then? it's so true though. Yeah. Right? I mean, it is so true. Yeah. And I do think about that. Mm-hmm. Like, am I willing to go to any lengths? Yeah. And that's why we pray for the willingness. Right. When we're not. Because it happens, like, sometimes I'm not willing, sometimes I'm not willing to go uh, and do my 12th step. Sometimes I don't want to go to, like... But see, the difference for me is even if I'm not willing to do step 12, I'll do it anyways. Yeah. You know? But step 11, it's like, mm mm-mm. But step 11, I'm just like... You can do that in the privacy of your own home, and... (laughs) I mean, you can literally do... I mean, I... I was doing, like, I was meditating and praying after breakfast club up here. Mm-hmm. I used to come up here every morning and do prayer meditation up here because my home, because I have two kids and I just, mm-hmm. and I stopped doing that. But anyways, <laughs> this is not a step 11 talk, <laughs> but I'm holding myself accountable to you and to the listeners. I'm getting back <laughs> on it. <laughs> So, because isn't life just so much better whenever you're doing 10, 11, and 12? Uh-huh. It just is. It just comes together. I even, know. like I said, even in all, in all circumstances. Yes. It, you can have that peace, just provided you're doing, yes. you know. And I have a lot more trust in God mm-hmm. when I'm disciplined in step 11. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Anyways, so what's your favorite part in the book? Oh, ooh, I don't, um, that's a, a toughie, because it's all really good, but the thing that popped into my mind first was the appendix on the spiritual experience. Why? Because I didn't know what it was when, when I first got into this, and when I heard, well, when I read Bill's story, um, and it talked about his, uh, spiritual awakening or his spiritual experience, I thought it was supposed to be like, the cherubs descending from the sky and the clouds parting and like a light shining down upon you. And it was like a big, super huge experience, which is why I didn't notice that I had had one, a spiritual awakening. But the appendix in the back talks about how it can be uh, an educational, uh, air quotes, educational variety. And I believe that's what my spiritual awakening was. What is a spiritual awakening for those listening who doesn't know what, who don't know what it means? Well, I like to describe it as like I had like a change in perspective. Yes. Um, so instead of everything being about me, I started focusing more on other people and what I can pack into the stream of life instead of what I can take out of it. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't notice that my way of thinking had shifted for a while, but it slowly started doing that over time. So for anybody who's like really concerned about 
like, oh, I don't know what it looks like. Or, you know, I didn't hear, you know, hallelujah or whatever coming down from the heavens. It is defined in the back of the book. So if that's helpful for anybody. Yeah, for sure. All right. So my final question is, and how fun has this, have you had fun? Yes, I have had fun. All right. Good. I feel like I know you on a deeper level. I feel like I know you <laughs> on a deeper level. All right. So my final question for you is, if you could leave us with one takeaway where it's only going to be one thing that somebody was going to hear, what would you want them to leave this podcast knowing? Um, that there is a solution that if there's a part in the book that talks about, I'm paraphrasing, my brain has turned to mush because of my alcoholism, I think. Mm. I can't remember anything. But there's a part in the book that talks about um, take away the alcohol problem and and ask yourself why um, you've had a rough going of life. Mm. Like if you're struggling and you're not sure if there's an answer, there are women all on this podcast who can attest to the fact that they have recovered from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body due to alcoholism. I have recovered from it. There is hope, essentially. Mm -hmm. There's a solution to the problem. And it's weird because I thought it was going to be complicated. Yeah. But it's a really simple solution to what actually turned out to be a really simple problem, which is I'm just bodily and mentally different from my fellows. I'm just an alcoholic. Mm. I wanted that to be complicated, too. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's really really simple, which uh, is a relief, you know, to me. So... There's a solution. There's hope. Um, it takes work, but it's simple. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much. If you all have loved what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your review matters. It helps us reach more alcoholic women or alcoholic men. Podcast is for everyone, mm-hmm. which is ultimately what we are trying to do. People need to know that there is a solution and that there is hope and that also all of the services we provide at the Magdalene House are absolutely free, so you don't even need money to recover. Um, You can recover with grace and dignity here at the Magdalene House, and your review helps us get that out there. Um, Also, rate us on Spotify, share with a friend, upload us to your Instagram story. You can tag Kelly Rides the Bus, the best Instagram handle there is, um, and the Magdalene House. We would love to hear what you have to say. And until then, I will see you guys on the next episode. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org.